Hi, I'm David Frasca. I train championship dogs, and you're listening to the Animal Academy Podcast. Welcome to the Animal Academy Podcast. I'm Allison White, and I'm a licensed clinical social worker who specializes in the human-animal connection. This podcast will showcase professionals who share their areas of expertise in an ongoing series of interviews, and you are there. Their input, stories, and knowledge will help us all understand that we are the ones that actually end up learning from the animals. This is the Animal Academy Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Animal Academy Podcast. Over the years, as I've raised, trained, and competed in sports with my dogs, I've learned lessons, some the hard way. At the same time, there's been growing research in the field of canine rehabilitation and sports medicine. I attended trainings, lectures, and then had to reach out to veterinary specialists when my dogs had injuries. Some were sports-related, and others had injuries just chasing squirrels in the backyard. I had the privilege to attend one of Dr. Zink's seminars called Coaching the Canine Athlete. I then reached out to Dr. Zink about my dog's recent injury, then followed up with an evaluation, then treatment plan, to help her heal her injury. This whole process of rehabilitation and learning about activities to help my dogs get into better condition created not only a bond with my dogs, but increased their quality of life. I am honored to be able to speak with tonight's guest, Dr. Chris Zink, who is one of the primary specialists who helped my dogs over the years. Chris, welcome to this episode of the Animal Academy podcast. Thanks so much, Allison. It's been great uh, staying in touch with you after all these years or during all these years. Well, I've appreciated everything you've done uh, for my dogs. You have done so much in your chosen career, Chris. How did you get started and what made you decide to specialize in canine sports medicine? When I was in veterinary school, actually, I started, I learned about dog sports and I started participating in them. I soon realized that even though we knew so much about sports medicine and rehabilitation of humans, there was absolutely nothing in my veterinary curriculum or in any veterinary curriculum on the subject, and yet there were all these dogs out there having a ball but sometimes getting injured and nobody to turn to. So I started reading everything that I could about human sports medicine and equine sports medicine and just started putting it together for myself, for my own practice, so that I could help the dogs that I was working with. And ultimately met others who had the same goals. And together we worked over about a period of about 10 years to create sports medicine and rehabilitation as the newest specialty in veterinary medicine. And it became an official specialty in 2010. Now we have much more information and we have residents and veterinarians who are learning about and specializing in the subject so that they can be of a great deal of help to not just competitive dogs, but Mm -hmm. also any dog that has an active life, which is pretty well most dogs. Mm -hmm. And when I think about sports medicine, um, a lot of people that I run into say, oh, but my dog isn't competing. And we'll talk about that a little bit later. But like you said, it's not just for dogs that are competing. It's for all dogs. Really is. It really is. So there's a lot of research being done on the importance of treating our dogs like we treat ourselves in order to have a healthy, pain-free life, while also reducing their chance of injuries. 
I know that this has been a focus of your career. Can you explain the importance of this? One of the things that amazes me is that we kind of look at dogs as if they are unlike humans, but they're really, they're really not that different. They have bones and ligaments and tendons and all those uh, other structures that can be injured. And so we know so much about the care of humans and their injuries, and I feel like why not take care of dogs in the same way? Mm-hmm. The other thing that I found happened was, as I worked on this, I discovered that caring for dogs in this way whether you're a veterinarian or whether you have a dog companion, what you find out is that it deepens your relationship with the dog. And so having a, a, a dog at home that you are deeply related to and that you are playing with and that you're you know, having games with or taking for hikes, etc., really, really deepens your relationship. And so keeping them in condition and making sure that they're not overweight and then keeping them healthy is only going to, for example, increase their longevity and improve your relationship. So so it's a win-win for everybody. It certainly sounds like it. I, I've seen a lot of research that's being done, and actually uh, people have told me that I think there's a YouTube video called Who Saved Who, where somebody adopted a dog from a shelter and ended up losing weight. His dog lost weight, and they both ended up really being healthy together. And it sounds like that has been your goal too, Chris. That really is true. That really is true. Yeah. And it's, it's, a, it's good for everybody involved. Yeah. Well, I know that you make a lot of reference to our dogs as being canine athletes. Can you explain what this means and how does this change the way we raise our dogs? Actually, dogs are inherently very athletic. They're much more athletic than humans are. So we've evolved to make our lives easier in many ways. But dogs have retained most of the physicality of their ancestor wolves. So even though we feed them and we provide them with shelter, I believe that they still need to be active to be truly fulfilled. In addition, their muscles are biochemically different from ours. And so in terms of energy use, they are much more aerobic. In fact, some people have called dogs the perfect running machine. Hmm. And so those bodies are designed to be used a lot. And so the vast majority of dogs need to be active to be fulfilled. I didn't know and that. And so you can, yeah, and, and, you know, you can say, you can call them canine athletes, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they're involved in only formal training and competition situations. They could be a canine athlete in the backyard as they're playing ball or as they go for a hike with you. Well, that's really interesting. And you've also received specialized certification in canine chiropractics and acupuncture. And just like, again, with humans, that helps keep their function going, right? It does. So I want to mention something about chiropractic care, because many people think about chiropractic as something to do with bones being out of place. And and really, it's not at all. It's actually about tuning the body up neurologically. So when you move those bones that have sort of become less mobile, what really is happening is you're setting in place a whole lot of neurological circuits and pathways that do a variety of things like reduce pain, relax the muscles, and really normalize the dog's body. So that is really important. Uh, That's a really important part of caring for an active dog or even a senior dog, and even actually puppies as they grow to help them grow 
in a more homeostatic or, or natural, uh, develop in a natural way. And then in terms of acupuncture, we know, and, and actually there's really strong evidence, even the National Institutes of Health has a statement about this, that acupuncture is effective, particularly for pain relief. We know that a large percentage of dogs experience arthritis, particularly as they get older, kind mm-hmm. of like humans. Mm-hmm. And it's a really effective non-pharmaceutical way to care for these dogs and, and for other causes of pain and dysfunction and other conditions and diseases. But the evidence is best for arthritis. So those are two really practical, clinical, safe ways to improve our dogs' lives. Well, and I, I can attest to that, too, because my older dogs always had chiropractic care and acupuncture as they got older, and they continued to be able to jump without needing pain medication. It was worth it for me to see them live a pain-free life as they got older. Right. So you saw it and experienced mm-hmm. it firsthand. And, sure did. And, so, and many others say the same thing. So mm-hmm. It's kind yeah. of cool to be able to do that for our companions. Exactly. Now I need to do it for myself, too, but that's that's another <laughs> subject. Another topic. <laughs> so, Chris, in 2009, you were awarded the Outstanding Woman Veterinarian of the Year Award, and you also established the American College of Veterinary Sports Medicine and Rehabilitation. This became one of the newest specialties in veterinary medicine. Can you talk about the significance of this to the world of veterinary medicine? That's one of the things that I'm most proud of. The fact that sports medicine and rehabilitation is a specialty means that the field has been legitimatized. So it's accepted by the broader field of veterinary medicine. You know, rehabilitation, for example, used to be considered an alternative therapy, maybe Hmm. something that you turn to when traditional types of therapy have failed or whatever. And, Mm -hmm. And that's not what it is in human medicine and really not what it should be in veterinary medicine. And now it isn't. It's mainstream. So what does that mean? It means that there are residency programs in veterinary schools throughout the world, actually. They train veterinarians in this field for both dogs and horses, actually. Mm -hmm. And over time, what that does is it translates to more knowledge, more centers of care, people that go out and teach other people about the field, and then that ultimately leads to better care and longer, healthier lives for our dogs. And that's the importance of having it be an actual specialty. It's that legitimatization of the field and the, uh, the, the spreading of knowledge everywhere and the betterment of the care. That's really exciting, Chris. How do you find, yeah, it is. Yeah, how do you find a specialist if your dog gets injured? I'm just curious. There is a website that the, the College of uh, Veterinary Sports Medicine and Rehabilitation has. It's it's vsmr.org, and on there there's a search function, so you can search for a board-certified specialist in sports medicine and rehabilitation. Okay. Well, we can add that to the show notes as well. I think that might be helpful for folks. That would be, yeah. Okay. That would be great. Okay. So, Chris, you teach canine sports medicine and rehab to veterinary professionals, but you also design conditioning programs for active dogs and their people. In fact, you were instrumental in designing a rehabilitation program for my golden retriever charity. Uh, she had torn a tendon in her arm when doing agility. And then I took her to an orthopedic surgeon. And it was horrible because he immediately said, well, no more agility. You're going to have to do surgery. Keep her calm the rest of her life. And she was a very active 
fun-loving dog, and this seemed really unimaginable for this young dog. So I met you at one of your seminars, and you said, well, why don't you come for an evaluation, which I did. And so it gave me hope. I realized at that point that with work and patience, my dog could live a pain-free life while also being able to do the activities she loved to do. I can't say enough how that changed both of our lives. And in fact, my dog eventually went off all of her pain medications and was able to continue jumping in agility. So I owe you a huge thank you for making that happen. Oh, that's, I'm so delighted. You know, I remember Charity well. It was so rewarding working with you and being able, you know, both of us being able to see her go back to an active and healthy life. And one of the things that, that really thrills me is to develop these relationships with my clients who have dogs and they, they do what I suggest and the dog gets better and then, uh, you know, becomes a healthy canine again. And I don't know, it's just so personally rewarding to be able to do that. And here we are all these years later, still having <laughs> stayed in touch all because of charity. It's That's right. Cool. She was an amazing golden retriever, and she taught me so much. I remember when initially I got the news from the surgeon that she wouldn't be able to jump again, and then you looked at her x-rays, and you I sent all of her medical records because I was in Missouri and you were in uh, Maryland, so I visited family and, and brought her down to see you, and I was just like holding my breath, waiting for you to say, yep, you're going to have to do surgery, and she's not going to be able to jump again. And instead, you said, nope, I think with a lengthy rehab. It was a lengthy rehab uh, process, but it was one step at a time. And I think that's where the value of treatment planning really helped. Because I would send you, uh, this is what she's doing now. And then you said, oh, back off on this or maybe walk her. You know, it was just a step-by-step process. Right. And, you know, it it really does borrow from human sports because – you know, you see, for example, a football player and you're watching and you see somebody lands on his knee and it gets all twisted and you find out that he has an anterior cruciate ligament rupture. And, you know, you hear what they're going to do. They say, this guy's going to go in for surgery tomorrow and then he's going to go in for rehab. We expect he'll be out for six weeks or something. Mm-hmm. And then he's back at the end of the season. Amazing. Nobody says to him, sorry, you're fired. Yeah. You know, I mean, <laughs> most of the time they don't. And so, and so... I realized there was a lot more potential. And unfortunately, sometimes if a veterinarian isn't uh, familiar with the sport that a dog is doing and what kind of training it takes and what that injury really means relative to that and how the dog can heal and and really come back to, you know, the tissues have remarkable healing abilities. Mm -hmm. If if they're just not familiar with that, sometimes they make statements like that that are very black and white, but it doesn't have to be that way. Yeah, and I I learned from from that experience and as well as learned all the different accommodations and uh, methods that we can use to help our dogs heal. Because I remember, you know, this is getting off on a tangent, I'll try not to, but after she ran in agility after the rehab, it continued to be a rehab process. And so I'd ice her arm and, you know, do the cool down. And we talked to Dr. Connie Schulte in a previous podcast episode about the importance of the warming up and cooling down, uh, just like we would a human athlete. Exactly. So, Chris, you've written numerous books on the subject of canine rehabilitation. I remember reading The Agility Advantage when working with my dog. And this was really, really helpful because it gave a roadmap 
of all the exercises needed at the different developmental stages. And I didn't realize, too, that some of these exercises that I had been doing a long time ago were probably not very healthy for my puppies. But I was able to guide them. And my, my puppy that I'm um, working with you now through one of your programs, I'm using the same guide. And so the whole goal is to prevent the injuries that occur later on in life if you don't take the precautionary steps when they're young. Right. You know, for a long time, we never really compared dog development to that of children, but it's very similar. We have better data now on what stages of a dog's life and what ages of of a puppy are comparable to those of the ages of a growing child. And so what we now can do is we can take the scientific data on how much exercise growing human children need to have to develop properly and become healthy adults and to resist injuries. And then we can apply those data to dogs so that they too develop into healthy adults. And that's essentially the basis of that puppy program Hmm. that you're working in right now Mm -hmm. with your little baby. Actually, it's probably not such a baby anymore, (laughs) right? That, that's kind of cool to be able to do that. And we know, so for example, the governments of uh, the United States and Canada and Australia and England and New Zealand, etc., have, have uh, rules about how much exercise children should get if they're going to develop normally. So mm-hmm. now we can apply those to dogs and we can say, here's what you do at this age and that age and the mm-hmm. next age. And, you know, I guess the other thing I want to say is that, you know, when, when we talk about being healthy, we don't just mean physically healthy, but emotionally healthy as well. Mm. The two are really interconnected, mm-hmm. as anyone who's experienced a chronic illness will attest to. It's mm-hmm. not just the physical illness, but it's the mental effects of that as well. And so being able to provide a young growing dog with appropriate exercise also helps them to develop mentally and emotionally. It's all very much neurological. And of course, the neurological system is not just about movement, mm-hmm. but also about thoughts and and, um, and solving problems, etc. Well, and I think, Chris, that's a really good segue into your Fit for Life puppy program or your Fit for Life canine health and fitness program, really, which I'm participating in with my young dog, who's getting a little bit bigger now. But you have a good for the soul exercise type. And that's kind of what you're just talking about, right? The off-lead or long-line walks and swims? Right. Letting the dog be free to run loose or to to be dragging a long line if it's not 100% safe. And to to allow them to, you know, imitate what they would have done if they'd been in the wild, running around, playing in puddles, uh, jumping over logs, experiencing different types of footing, etc. And, and, you know, this is part of really a whole-life a comprehensive fitness and lifestyle program that we've developed. You know, all all my life, what I really wanted to do was to have a, a, a program that would be comprehensive, and that you could, and that would be sort of ideal for bringing dogs out as their best. And so, um, with the help of my colleague Gail Watkins, um, we put together a program that combines a simple fitness program for dogs of any age, as early as three weeks when they're just starting to learn how to walk, Hmm. all of the way to the end of life. And with appropriate nutrition and other health information that people can access. And really the goal of the program, you know, it's 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 sort of like it's a life work for me. It's be able to provide kind of a clear path 
for people to be able to improve their dog's health and, and lifespan and to be able to get answers for what's the best thing, what should I do now, uh, you know, and what if this happens, how should I respond to that, etc. So I'm pretty, honestly, I'm pretty proud of it because mm. it's sort of like a one-stop health and lifestyle site for dogs. Well, it's a really exciting program. There's uh, flexibility, balance, and proprioception, and then the good, good for the soul exercise type. And you're given like a treatment plan, really, of what days you should do what different types of exercise, and they're fun exercises to do. There's even downward dog and cat pose. So if you're into yoga, uh, <laughs> you <Yeah>. can <laughs> maybe do that and with your dog. And individualized for every dog, you know, because dogs are not, you know, dogs are so different, different sizes and shapes and and so it, it, it really allows every dog, it gives every dog a place, you know, every dog a, a plan of, yeah. what, of how to be their best. Yeah. Dr. Zink, I'd like to take a short break, if that's okay with you. We're having such an informative conversation with you, and you're a true leader and innovator in the field of canine sports medicine. But let's just take a short break, and we'll be right back. Thought about a career in voiceover? Need a great, cost-effective on-hold message for your organization or business? Don't know where to start? Check out The Voice Farm, your one-stop shop for voiceover needs. Check it out now by accessing The Voice Farm at voicefarmers.com and see what difference can be made with a company that is truly outside the box. From The Voice Box, voicefarmers.com. That's voicefarmers.com. Do you like what you're hearing during this episode of the Animal Academy podcast? If so, consider having your business, organization, or effort connect with me to see how you can sponsor or be featured inside this podcast. Visit my website over at animalacademypodcast.com and let's have a conversation. Make your podcast soar with the Editor Corps. The one question every podcaster needs to ask themselves is, why am I still editing my own podcast? We all know that editing your own podcast is the worst part of the podcast experience. Get the editing off your plate and reclaim more time to make more content with The Editor Corps. Affordable, talented, experienced podcast editors are ready to take your podcast literally to the next level to make it soar. Make your podcast soar with the Editor Core. EditorCore.com. That's EditorCore.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to our discussion with Dr. Chris Sink. Chris, before we went to break, we were talking about your program, Fit for Life Canine Health and Fitness Program. You were talking about how this is a program that's very comprehensive for all dogs of all ages. And I know with me participating in the puppy version, this also includes a Facebook community uh, where we can share stories and get feedback on how we're progressing. Is there anything else you want to discuss about your program? You know, the, uh, there's two really key things, I think, that differentiates this program from others. One is that you, um, you do assessments on your dogs now. You don't do it with the puppies, so you haven't done that yet. But after a dog gets to be six months old, you, you do monthly assessments. And oh. this is really important because they're very simple and they're very, uh, they're very easy little tests you do to measure objectively with numbers how strong the dog is in each of their four legs and their core uh, musculature. 
And what it allows you to do is to monitor your dog as they grow and develop, and it will allow you to identify if there are any early uh, weaknesses or maybe even an injury because you start to see that that dog that was really strong on that leg maybe becomes a little bit weaker hmm. or maybe there develops an asymmetry where one leg is substantially stronger than the other leg. And so you can, and so you can identify very, very early little tweaks that have happened and address them. So that's really cool. The other thing that happens with the assessment is each time you do the assessment and you plug your data into our computer, it provides you with a new program of exercises. And so that's how you progress. Oh, wonderful. But the other thing that's really unique about the program that we're really proud of is that we have every month we have uh, a telephone call where anyone can call in and get coaching directly from me and Gail. And Mm -hmm. so you can call in, you can ask any personal question you have about your dog. My dog was doing this. I'm wondering about that or what's the best tick control or whatever question that you have. And you get that personalized coaching from us. And that's pretty, that's pretty helpful for people. That's a lot of participation on those calls. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. You all, you also had a program where, you know, for people who need maybe a quick tip on housebreaking, uh, they have coaching calls for that as well. Yes. Yeah. And that's, you know, so every dog and and every person is an individual and things come up and you need a place to go to get your answers to those questions. So mm-hmm. that's pretty important, we think. Yeah. One of my friends actually has subscribed to your program for adults. And I think you also have webinars because she said she's enjoyed some of your webinars. Yes. We now have a large library of webinars that are accessible uh, to anyone who's a member, and uh, these webinars cover a variety of topics like nutrition, supplementation, how to deal with arthritis, how you, what, what, you know, what's the best care for senior dogs, and then there's a whole series on injuries of all the different types of injuries in the different parts of the body hmm. that dogs can develop injuries, so people that have that kind of injury in their dog can, can go there, or, and also there's information on how to prevent injuries from happening. It's a pretty large library now, and all available to uh, to any of the members. Okay, it's so a good you, source of information. So we're going to put that in the show notes as well, so people know how to access the membership. That would be great. Yeah. Okay, so Chris, you put over 125 titles on your dogs, and this includes agility, obedience, rally, confirmation, tracking, hunt test, barn hunt, luring, coursing, and nose work. That's really impressive. I know you've also competed with several different breeds of dogs. Do you enjoy one sport more than the other? You know, it's an interesting question. I actually think that every sport that we train our dogs in develops our relationship with our dogs in a differently, sort of in a different nuanced way. Mm-hmm. So each one has its own strengths. But if I was had to choose, I would say that I love the physical challenge of agility, but I also love the mental challenge of nose work. Mm. And those two are probably my favorite for those reasons. And, you know, for example, many people, I wish more people got involved in nose work in particular because many people feel that they have very active dogs and they need the dog to tire themselves out. And and, and sometimes they over-exercise dogs, for example, you know, throwing a ball until the dog is exhausted, etc., But if they just participated in nose work, they would learn that mental exhaustion is just as tiring for dogs 
as physical exhaustion. And, uh, and so I love to watch that incredible challenge that uh, nose work puts my dogs into it as the, and to watch them trying to solve the problem of where that scent really is. It's tremendously interesting to watch. Oh, that, sound, that sounds really incredible. When you were talking about the different uh, sports, and I, I kind of reflected back on me taking my Shelties herding and my golden retrievers to do hunt, hunt tests, and I'm not, you know, I'm not a hunter, but I certainly enjoyed watching them do field work. And the same thing for my it, Shelties. It is so lovely to watch the yes. dogs do the thing for which they were genetically developed, you know. I exactly. Mean, their brain is designed to do those things. Uh, such a joy to watch that, isn't it? It certainly is. I think I embarrassed my Shelties, though, when I fell over one of the sheep troughs. I backed up and the <laughs> sheep were coming right at me. And he just stared at me like, don't embarrass me. I know what I'm doing. Yeah. So <laughs> I'm sure he forgave you. I'm sure. <laughs> Later. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> That's an important question, too. How do you decide what activities to do with your dogs? Oh, man, that's a hard one because there's so many available, you know. But I think it is really important to, to, to look at your dog and decide which things might he be physically capable of doing. Mm-hmm. and then watch which things he enjoys most. Like, for example, in the sport of agility, the really giant breeds struggle quite a bit. You know, for example, getting through the, that low tire, mm-hmm. quite difficult for the really giant breeds. So maybe that's not the best sport for them. But also, we really want to look at our dogs, and we want to see where, what makes them smile, what gives them that delight, what brightens their eyes. And that's the games, those are the games we should play. So the ones that they're physically capable of of, and the ones that they enjoy the most. And honestly, that's pretty much the measure that I use for my dogs too. I won't compete in a sport that they don't enjoy because then it's not fun for either one of us. So that's got to watch your dog. And then you got to be the adult and make sure that it's something that's safe for them. I think that's an important thing, too. I think sometimes it's it's hard to give up a sport because you want to do it, but then your dog's not enjoying it, so then it's really not a team. Right. Or or maybe your dog is, maybe your dog really would like to do it, but doesn't have the physique mm-hmm. or whatever to do it, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you've talked about Absolutely. that in your seminars as well, when doing agility, really pay attention to the structure of your dog so you don't break the dog down. Yep. Yeah, you have to, you, have, it's, you know, it's the same as in any, with any human athlete. They measure out how much work they do, and they make sure that they are monitoring that all the time so they don't overdo it, even as human athletes. Mm-hmm. So if they do overdo it, or if you notice that your dog is showing some signs of just, I don't know, maybe limping here and there, or maybe not acting like themselves, when should you go for a sports medicine assessment? I, that's actually a really important key. So let me tell you, many times what I see is, and this, this more so perhaps in the past, but, uh, but I still see this, maybe we're doing something with our dog and the dog isn't doing it as well as they used to, or maybe the dog doesn't have the same attitude towards the game. Always, you know, your choice now is to either train harder and, you know, trying to get the dog to do it right or to stop and say, okay, what's going on here? He used to do better than this. He's struggling now. What Mm -hmm. could possibly be the cause? Mm -hmm. And you always want to first think about an injury because if if it's an injury, 
then you're you're doing the safe thing by checking it out and getting it fixed. Mm-hmm. And if it's an injury, trying to train it, trying to train the dog harder and train him out of that problem is not going to work mm-hmm. because it's an injury. Mm-hmm. So always, anytime that anyone sees anything in their dog that is atypical, any kind of decline in their attitude or any kind of decline in their performance, that's what we need to do. We need to first rule out the possibility of an injury. Okay. That's really critical. I've seen so many times that, you know, that people will say, oh, well, he's just giving me the doggy claw or something like uh-huh. that. And it's not that. It's it's actually an injury. And maybe they don't find out for quite a while. And that's kind of sad. So we want to sad. always give the dog the benefit of the doubt by checking that out first. Okay. That's great advice. I had read, or maybe I heard it from you, I don't, I don't remember, to pay attention when your dog gets up, like gets out of their kennel or gets up from a down and see if there's any change. Yes. That's the time when, particularly if a dog has, um, has arthritis or if a dog has a chronic injury, they'll oftentimes show it when they first get up from resting especially if they're resting after having been active, mm-hmm. they'll show it for the first few steps and, and you'll see something you just think, hmm, that doesn't look quite right. Mm-hmm. And that's worth getting checked out. Okay. Okay. Chris, in one of your books, you said something that's very interesting. You said a lot of interesting things, but this kind of uh, made me scratch my head a little bit. You said that dogs can be either left or right-handed or pawed, whatever you want to call that. This is really interesting. What are your thoughts on this, and how could you even tell? So it's actually really interesting. There's been quite a number of publications about this, and it's called laterality. And uh, it turns out that many different animals have this. But in terms of dogs, it's been really, really interesting. They show, for example, they'll, they'll do um, these studies where they look at what side the dog wags their tail to more. So instead of, you know, instead of, you know, say six inches to the right and six inches to the left, the dog might wag eight inches to the right and two inches to the left. And it's actually really fascinating because what they showed is that when a dog is peaceful and relaxed and happy and feels comfortable, they'll wag their tails more to the right-hand side. Hmm. But if a dog, for example, meets another strange dog and the other dog looks aggressive or the, or the, or the dog is fearful of, a, of the other dog, he'll wag his tail more to the left. Interesting. And that is related to the part of the, the side of the brain that's functioning at that time. And they've done these really amazing studies on this. And, and they've also actually shown, this is a really cool study, they actually showed there's a, there's a thing called cognitive bias. So you know how some people are like glass half full people and glass uh-huh. half empty people. Right. And they can they can do these tests on dogs to see whether they actually are anticipating good things happening or anticipating negative things happening. And it turns out that the dogs that are uh, right-sided are much more positive. They're the glass half full dogs. Huh. And dogs that are left-sided are, are more the dogs that are concerned or cautious or whatever wonder if that is uh, that true for people, too, because I'm right-handed, and I'm, <laughs> I'm a positive person. I don't know about people, and I'm not going to make any guesses on that one. No, that's really but interesting. Also, people don't have tails that wag. So oh, that's true. That <laughs> that's part. true. So the way, one of the ways that they test for laterality in dogs is they'll take a dog to the top of a set of stairs, and they'll mm-hmm. see which uh, foot he leads with to go down the stairs. 
Oh, okay. Okay. I'm going to have and to look that study up. they'll test it multiple times and they'll see which one is predominant when they, when they step to go down the first set of, just a set of three or four stairs. Okay. Which, which uh, foot do they lead with? Okay. Kind of cool. Yeah, it is cool. So, Chris, you've also been instrumental in advocating for not spaying or neutering dogs until they're a certain age. How does this early spay or neuter impact a dog's health? Oh, it's a huge topic. It is. Um, I'll tell you, there's an abundance of evidence that is surfacing that indicate that early spaying and neutering changes the bony development of dogs, and it leads to an increase in orthopedic issues. This has been shown in Golden Retrievers, Labrador Retrievers, German Shepherds, uh, Vizslas, and, and a variety of other breeds of dogs. And it's, it's, it has to do with the fact that the sex hormones are responsible for, for stopping growth. And so if you remove the sex hormones, the growth continues longer than it should. And so the dog develops an abnormal or at least the, a shape that was not what they were genetically meant to look like. And, and so there's very, very good evidence that these dogs will develop an increased risk of uh, hip dysplasia, patellar luxation, and, and a variety of other orthopedic uh, conditions. So it's really important. You know, it's, it's, um, the gonads are not just there for sex. They are there to control a lot of different aspects of how the cellular functions and the whole endocrine system has a bunch of feedback mechanisms that depend on the, the gonad, the gonadal hormones. And when those hormones are not there, then those feedback cycles become disrupted. And in fact, we know that uh, there are a variety of endocrine issues that are increased in dogs that have that have had their gonads removed. So things like hypothyroidism and adrenal cancer, etc. Uh, it's also important to realize that the you know that you can prevent a dog from reproducing and still let it retain its gonads. Mm-hmm. It, it you don't have to take them away, just as you don't have to take them away in humans to prevent them from reproducing. Well, and I know that this is a really, really, there's a lot of information you can share on that. So we're going to also put a copy of your study in the show notes so people can read up more on that. Yeah, that's great. It's just just a bulleted list of the kinds of things that have been published about the effects of spaying and neutering. So I think people would find that pretty interesting. Oh, I think so too. So in the past episodes of the Animal Academy podcast, we've talked about compassion fatigue among veterinary professionals. I was wondering, you you were involved in so many interesting things and different activities and projects. Have you ever experienced compassion fatigue or what do you do to stay so energized? That's really an interesting question. I'll tell you one of the major reasons, one of the major things that makes veterinary medicine, regular general practice veterinary medicine difficult is veterinarians go into the field because they love animals. And then you go into the field and you realize you have to euthanize dogs all the time. Mm -hmm. You see dogs that are in various conditions that are painful and you feel empathy for that. And it, it's actually really, really difficult. And if I honestly... I found, particularly euthanizing dogs, I, I found that very, very difficult, and I really struggled with that when I was in general practice. The field of uh, rehabilitation and sports medicine, you don't do very much of that. In fact, it's very positive because you see a lot of dogs regaining health and improving longevity 
and honestly, you pretty well never have to euthanize anything. So mm-hmm. I have never really experienced that ever since going into the to this field, and that's been quite a few decades now. So it's finding your passion. You know, I think it's the field that I'm in. I think it's when you're really passionate about something, mm-hmm. it's not so fatiguing. And I think that's But I have great important. sympathy for veterinarians in general practice. It's extremely difficult. It's a very, very difficult career. It is a difficult career, and we, we appreciate everybody and all the work that they do. So, Chris, is there, yeah, is there anything else that you'd like to share? I mean, you've done a tremendous uh, number of activities and projects, and uh, is there anything else you'd like to share with the audience? I guess the one thing that I would say is that I would love it for people to realize that just by making a few changes in our lives, we can improve the health and longevity of our dogs so immeasurably. You know, our dogs give us so much. And if we just make a few little changes, we can give them some of that joy and longevity and health that they give us. We can give it back. Mm-hmm. And uh, just takes a little bit, as you've learned, you know, just a little bit. And it doesn't have to be too overwhelming, does it? Not at all. I mean, you know, 10 minutes, two or three times a week, you can improve your dog's lifespan immeasurably by, by multiple years. And, you know, we, we want our dogs to live forever. We have this great relationship. And, and, and how great is it for them to be able to live even just a few years longer? It's, it's called health span. We're, you know, sometimes we talk about lifespan. Mm-hmm. But what we really want is health span. We want that dog to be healthy to the very, very last day. And I think about one of my golden retrievers, my last golden before the one that I currently have, and she um, was 15 and a half when she died, which is a mm-hmm. nice long life for mm-hmm. a dog. And what she did, what she was doing on that day was she was um, at the University of Pennsylvania being a demonstration dog for me, demonstrating a, a specific exercise that, that takes a tremendous amount of strength and coordination. And there she was doing that demonstration. And I noticed she had a moist cough. And since I was already at the University of Pennsylvania Vet School, I just took her over to emergency. And we found out that she had cancer that had metastasized to Mm. her lungs. And we put her to sleep that day. But how wonderful to die at age 15 and a half in complete health. That's awesome. And that's what I would want for everybody, and that's what I would want for every dog. I think that's a wonderful wish, and I think that you're doing that, Chris, by sharing the programs, the conditioning programs, and focusing on, really, we, you know, for people, we focus on whole person care in the healthcare field, and you're really focusing on that with dogs' conditioning and wellness programs. Yes, that's really our goal. Chris, thank you so much for this informative discussion. I enjoyed talking with you today and appreciate everything you do in the field. Thanks, Allison. It was great catching up with you again and, and just think how thankful uh, we are to Charity for bringing us together all those years ago. That is, I, I think about her every day, actually. She taught me so much about life. She was a great girl. Thanks so much, Chris. You're welcome. What a tremendous spirit. I have a question for all of you. Are you fostering a health span For your dog or animal? Why not? Chris is and has never been afraid to start something new, and that's why she continues to be an innovator in her field. All of this is her passion. Taking care of the health of the animals, fostering that health span, and crafting a legacy all of us will remember for a long time. 
Doesn't that sound like something all of us should be focusing on? When it comes to truly experiencing the quality of the human-animal connection, few things are more important. It's the bond and teamwork that makes us all, animals and humans, complete. Thanks for taking the time to listen to this episode of the Animal Academy podcast. Detailed contact information and links for each of the guests and resources provided inside this episode can be found at my website, animalacademypodcast.com. I'm Allison White, licensed clinical social worker specializing in the human-animal connection. Let's share and learn from the animals in the next episode of the Animal Academy podcast.